Welcome to the Starlight Pet Talk podcast, where we'll talk about and explore ways to help pet parents and future pet parents learn everything they need to know to have a happy and healthy relationship with their pet. So sit up and stay for Starlight Pet Talk, rescue, adoption, and pet parenting done right. If you're a fan of Starlight Pet Talk, you'll love our new line of merchandise. We have t-shirts, hoodies, and more, all featuring your favorite podcast logos and designs. Plus, we're offering a limited number of Starlight Outreach and Rescue items where a portion of the proceeds go directly to Animal Rescue. Our merchandise is the perfect way to show your support for your favorite pet podcast and Animal Rescue at the same time. So what are you waiting for? Just visit our website at www.starlightpettalk.com to order your merchandise today. Hi, welcome to Starlight Pet Talk. I'm your host, Amy Castro. Eh, wrong. I am the sub-host for Amy. She is now become not the host, but the interviewee. I'm going to be interviewing Amy on what it's like to actually run an animal rescue. The nuts and bolts, looking from 30,000 feet above. I know a little bit about the workings. I get to hear some tough-to-listen-to stories. I get to hear wonderful stories. I get to see pictures of all the animals. And so I'm kind of involved. I kind of know what it takes. I've actually been down there on my vacation, scooping litter boxes, doing the doing the stuff that needs to be done, especially when she was injured, you know, and COVID had hit and all that. And I was kind of helping them catch up. So I do know a little bit, but for most people, they might not know the inner workings of what it's like, what it takes to actually run a rescue, the behind the scenes work that a lot of people aren't aware of. All, like all the commercials on TV are about sweet little puppies and petting puppies and kissing kittens. And it's really not. It takes a lot to get a rescue up and running. So, Amy. Yes, ma'am. The interviewed person, no longer the host. <laughs> I took over. I took over everything. I'm a little, fr- I'm a little afraid. <laughs> what are some of the most challenging aspects that you found since you really started it from, let's get it off the ground. I, I, I don't know what I'm getting into, but I'm going 50 miles an hour into it. What have you found has been one of the most challenging things about running a rescue? In the beginning, obviously, it's getting the whole thing structured properly. I mean, in order, and one of the things that I always recommend to people when you're looking for a rescue is to at least start Mm -hmm. with an organization that has its 501c3 nonprofit status. That means they've gone to the trouble to, to go through the, you know, the legal requirements to be a charity so that they can take charitable donations and things like that. And oftentimes somebody who has taken the time to do that, it's just one piece of whether an organization is legitimate, but it's, but it's an important Mm. piece because there are people out there who call themselves rescuers and they may not have good structures in place, or sometimes it's even hoarding situations. So um, it's definitely something to, that adds some legitimacy to your organization. So there's that whole, but it's only one part of it. It's only one part of it. Yeah. Is it relatively easy to get that status or is, is there licensing and, and work like that, that re- is required to get that? At least in the state of Texas, there's no licensing requirement for being an animal rescue, but there, there is some paperwork. I mean, we just, a friend of mine who's an attorney did it to, did it for me at a, at a low cost just okay, to make it. sure all the paperwork is done right. It can be done on your own, but it's, it's probably something that's worth consulting an attorney on yeah. getting the structure set up properly because you've got to have, you know, you've got to decide what kind of business structure are you going to be a, you know, like we're a limited liability corporation. So we have to have a board of directors. Way I know. Over yeah, my okay. head. Way so nobody over cares. No, about no, it, but it's, it, it, it's work. It's that's not, a, that's a, a, a part of running a rescue that people don't realize there's a lot of gibbledygook that goes behind it yeah. that 
you better mind your P's and Q's to get it done right and not run into problems down the road. Right. Yeah. Right. And on that con- um, on that same line of, you know, money and fundraising, you know, that's probably one of the first challenges is raising, you know, raising money is a whole aspect, a whole chunk of our time that we spend in in rescue. What would be a um, a challenge in fundraising that you find? I mean, there's many of them. You know, when you're getting started, it's people don't know you and they're hesitant to just give their money to some random organization. So again, having that nonprofit status and being able to prove that to people is is definitely helpful. You know, different people go about fundraising in different ways and each one has its pros and cons. And it really depends on your organization and your people power, for lack of a better term. So for us as a relatively small, and we're talking about Starlight Outreach and Rescue, and which is why the podcast is called, you know, Starlight Pet Talk. You know, we're a relatively small organization compared to some. We're foster-based, so we don't have a big facility where people can be invited to a location and say, we're going to put on this big fundraising event. So it's really, it's determining how you're going to go about fundraising. For us, we do a lot of our fundraising on Facebook. It's not labor-intensive. It allows us to reach our, our audience. And thank goodness, we have fantastic supporters who trust us, who know us, and are willing to make those wow. donations through Facebook. The other, or the other advantage to the Facebook donations is, you know, a lack of fees because if somebody does a donation through some of the other, I won't name any names, but larger money receiving entities that organizations can use, they're going to take a percentage. Or if somebody makes a credit card, now you've got to pay credit card fees, things like that. But uh, Facebook doesn't charge any fees. So if you donate $10, all $10 is coming to Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's coming to the animal rescue. So we love Facebook and we love uh, people that just will just mail us a check because obviously there's no It it staggers my... There's so many times when I've been staying with, with Amy at our house and when envelopes come in with checks... And they're like, I'm not even sure who this person is. I might have met them at an event for five minutes and they send a, a generous check. It, it never ceases to amaze me how generous people can be. We just did a, a, a podcast uh, the other day at where I volunteer over at Wildcare in Orleans, Massachusetts. And I am shocked. Some guy came in off his work site in his you know overalls and his, his uh, work boots with a shoebox with some injured animal. And he had 40 bucks in his hand. Yeah. And he's handing it over. I'm like, oh my God, it just... The community um, supports wildcare so heavily, and I see since you don't have a centralized place, how the internet is your friend. Yeah, it's and def- just to be able to click. And people who know me, my friends on Facebook, they trust me, so they're going to say, "Oh, Bev donates. I'm going to donate too." So the grassroots word of mouth is the way to go through the internet. I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different <clears throat> ways to go about it, but certainly, you know, working your network is big, but. It's either the social media aspect and marketing, for lack of a better term. Then obviously there are a lot of organizations that run anything from small events. They'll do a, in animal rescue, people will do dog washes and car washes mm-hmm. or a bake sale. I mean, we're all kind of familiar with those different types of fundraising events on one end of the spectrum. And then you've got fundraising events on the other end of the spectrum where you're running a big fashion show and you mm-hmm. or you've got some gala that celebrities are coming to and people are wearing fancy clothes and it raises hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times people will make suggestions to us as, you know, you guys should, you know, you guys should do this. You should do a barbecue. You should do this event. But I think what people don't realize is, and and this may just be me, but 
events are very labor intensive. Mm. And so if I'm going to spend six months planning an event, I've now put six months amount of my time into planning that event that could have been going to something different. I'm not saying better or worse, but different that in the end could turn out to be a better use of my time because that fundraiser, you know, raised a thousand dollars. Now you can say, thousand dollars. You nothing to sneeze at. Absolutely. But when you've had uh, 50 people planning an event for six months and it nets a thousand dollars, when you could do a fundraiser on Facebook that nets a thousand dollars, it's, you've got to, you've got to think about the people power that goes into right. it um, and what your community is willing to support too. Right. So we try to do, and every organization struggles with this what should we do and being consistent in the way that you fundraise. But, you know, the bottom line is fundraising is our, our bread and butter. We don't, you know, we don't get state funding. That's something that sometimes people don't realize about most animal rescues is that they're not funded by the state. City shelters, things like that are funded by the city that they're in and that's good. But so even, they can't do a fundraiser because generally, generally yeah, they can't. Right. And that's, you know, then that's a challenge too. So they're limited to what the city's able to give them. The bottom line, what I would say about that is that it is a challenge. It's a constant effort of of fundraising. And, you know, we always like to hope that people don't think we're constantly begging them for money. But what I have found is that people have different things that Mm. that appeal to them. And so, and you had mentioned this earlier, like you, you're a regular donor. So you, you, you give us a donation every single month and we greatly appreciate that. But every once in a while, there's that heartstring story or that particular animal that you say, I really want to do something extra. And so by us basically continually to put that information out there, it allows people to basically donate towards something that they're, that they're passionate about. I also think being able to provide different levels, you know, we do $5 Fridays because, you know, if you're, if you could afford that Starbucks or that run through McDonald's and then have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and make your own coffee that day, that $5 adds up with other people's $5. So we've got people that donate $5 and we've got people that write us a check for $5,000. I wish we had more of those (laughs) because it would just, it would make things a lot less work, but it's a, it's a constant process of keeping the funds coming in because that's the only source of funds. It's a hundred percent donations. I I can see how it'd have to be varied, whether it's internet or doing those in-person things, because everybody wants to see the kitten. Everybody wants to see the puppy. So you do have to do that. And I know firsthand when you do those in-person events, all those puppies that you want to see and all those kittens that you want to kiss, they got to go from the foster home or from her house into a carrier, into a car, driven by a volunteer, go to the event, set the event up, go through the event, tear the event down and bring them back. I mean, it's it's so labor intensive and yet the rewards of it are staggering. So they can be, they can be, yeah. And sometimes they're a bust and you're like, Oh yeah. Why did I go through all So so you go through these events and whether they're like you said, six months of work for netting a thousand bucks might, you might not continue doing that event. Let's get more creative. Yeah. So whether it's in person or on the internet, you're always looking for something to, to be creative about gleaning ideas from, from anywhere to be more creative about raising money. Yeah. Well, and the, and the challenge too, in any type and anyone, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this that are involved in different organizations as with any organization, you might have a hundred people quote unquote on the books volunteering for the organization. But as far as actively volunteering, yeah. it's a, usually a significantly smaller number, which it is for us. And we love our volunteers that are active but a lot of times people don't want to be that money person. And so yeah. it ends up, it's like, now I'm responsible for fundraising in addition to the other responsibilities. So it's, it's a lot to yeah, juggle. I know, I know you wear many, many hats, many yeah. hats for sure. So, 
stop talking about money. <laughs> well, the, well, the, the one thing yeah. I will say about the the fundraising, where um, you know, it's 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 difficult when an organization that you donate to is constantly asking for money. But think about your own home, how you're running a home. We're out of paper towels. Got to go to the store and get more paper towels. Just because you bought paper towels doesn't mean you're done. Yeah. There's always another mouth to feed. And once that mouth is fed, it's going to want to eat again tomorrow. So that's why it's constant. You can't look at it as like, I already gave $15. What more do you want? Yeah. It's, it's all the time. And that's what keeps it running smoothly. Yep. Got to keep, got to keep doing it. Yep. All right. That's with the money. Yeah. You touched on uh, volunteers. I would imagine if you're working at a rescue that rescues snakes, might not have as many volunteers as a rescue that wants. People love snakes. People love snakes, <laughs> but I bet you it's more appealing to work with puppies. So how do you get volunteers? How do you glean volunteers? How do you keep them actively involved? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, I mean, obviously we use social media and, and word of mouth to, to gain volunteers. Um, we try our best to, when when we're recruiting volunteers, to kind of give them, I, th I think it's important to give them a realistic expectation of what we do and what the opportunities are. So we do, you know, we try to provide an orientation, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or a group, if we get a, a chunk of volunteers that sign up for the, at the same time. Because I think sometimes, especially in animal rescue, people have um, a different perception than the reality. And so people will perceive I'm going to volunteer and it could be at your local animal shelter or it could be at an animal rescue, right. or whatever. I'm right. going to go volunteer at the shelter and I'm going to get the opportunity to, you know, play with play with animals. And a couple of things come up. Number one, as much as we would we love you playing with animals, what we probably really need help with, mm. in, at least in some organizations, because we don't have a paid staff to scoop those litter boxes and we're trying to fundraise and do everything else. So I would be much happier if you came and scooped some litter boxes or right. um, took some dogs for a walk that needed some exercise than just kind of playing with kittens or taking pictures or whatever it might be. I mean, all of it's in need, but it's in balance. And so I think it's important for people that are going to volunteer for an animal organization to find out what the need is. You know, what are the jobs that are available for me, whether it's fostering in your own home whether it's coming to a facility to clean or to exercise animals or socialize animals, is it going to that fundraising event? And most organizations are going to have all of those opportunities. And it's just a matter of finding the fit for that person, what they like, what they're, what they're comfortable with. Because the bottom line is we go through a process to bring people on board. There's a training process that our insurance, because you're covered by our, for us, we have insurance for you when you're a volunteer, if God forbid something was to happen to you. So our insurance does require a certain level of animal handling training. And once that's complete and you're kind of ready to go, we, you know, we try our best to not only get you in the position that's a good fit for you or give you opportunities to do things that you want to do within, you know, within reason, but also to provide you all the support. And that's something that I think volunteers should be very careful about when they're picking rescues, especially to volunteer with is, what kind of support am I going to be provided? So, for example, if you were fostering pets in your home, um, does that organization, wh whatever it may be, are they going to mm. provide you with all the food, the bedding, the formula if you're feeding bottle babies, medication, paying for the vet, or are you on your own? And then there's everything in between along the way. Really, there's going to be a rescue that will just say, here's the pet. It's up. It's your responsibility to do, take care of everything else, like all that. Yeah. And your rescue provides that. 
I mean, we basically provide anything, you know, within that's reason. Amazing. I'm not going to provide you something that's illegal, but uh, well, everything that you need, but everything that you yeah. need. I mean, I, I get I get fosters that will call me and say, I need more litter. And if I can't get it from my house to their house, I'm going to Amazon Prime it to their front porch the next day. And we're going to make sure that they that they have. That. So basically, there's no reason not to volunteer and be a foster. Right. The other that's thing, amazing. Well, the other thing I would say, and, and I think this is something that drives volunteers away because it's not just getting the volunteers. It's keeping them active and keeping them on board. And when they have a bad experience, like I was told I could take this, I was going to take this puppy for two weeks, but then they found out it had X, Y, Z diseases. And now I've had it for six months and they can't take it back because they have no place to put it. Mm. And that happens. And I don't, it's not malicious or uh, trying to trick somebody, but it's not thinking the whole process through, right. you know? So what we try to do, and I'm not saying we're better than anybody else, but in order for me to even get people willing to foster, they like a time limit. So I can say, Hey, Bev, can you take this dog for me for two weeks? And I will take it back on the 14th. And then if you decide, Hey, I'm, I'm loving having this dog around. I'm really enjoying him and he hasn't been adopted yet. And you want to keep him longer. God love you. You can have him longer. That's a but- really good point. I think you mentioned that in one of your other podcasts, like think of it as uh, pet sitting for two weeks. Yeah. And it all of a sudden it makes it so much more palatable. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to get, roped into something I don't want to keep. Yeah. But if you say it's like, no, two weeks and we'll take it back. No questions asked. That's I, I assume other rescues do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, to varying degrees, you know, I think what happens sometimes is people over, and this is going to lead to some other, other challenges that we're going to talk about in, in rescue is that, you know, the whole process is a flow, right? I, I accept something off of the street. I process it medically and then because we don't have a facility per se, now I have to move it to a foster. So if I'm smart, I'm not going to take something off the street unless I know I have a foster spot or a place at my house, because what am I going to do with it then? So, right. but then I also have to think about the process as to how that can back up. So Bev has two puppies at her house. She's maxed out. Susie has two puppies, puppies, Mark has two puppies, kittens, whatever it is. Now my fosters are all full. Do I keep taking animals in? Ugh. I, you know, and I can't, I have, no place, to, another... I have no place to put them. And that's where some groups will get in over their heads. Now we've got my garages full of cat cages or whatever, you know, and it, and it kind of expands to, and I see shelters do this too. You know, they have enough facility, a boarding facility, the equivalent of a boarding facility for 16 dogs, but they've got 42 because they've got 16 cages with two dogs in each one. And we've got cages lined up, temporary cages lined up in our hallway. And there's a dog living in the bathroom. And it, it absolutely can get out of hand. And now we're getting into something beyond the yeah. volunteering. Mm-hmm. But for groups that are foster-based that don't have a facility, our ability to take in animals is directly proportionate to how many how many fosters we have. I think the key thing with the whole element of volunteers is, number one, making sure volunteers know what they're getting into, making sure that they have an out, you know, that you're not that I think that's key sticking them with an animal permanently. Because not only that, not only is it going to be more comfortable to hear those words saying like, Oh, there is an end to this. This is okay. I'm not roped in anything. I might do it a second time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. If you make the experience, right. It kind of keeps it fresh for them too. What's next. What's coming down the, Oh, maybe this will be a, a, a ginger cat. <laughs> hey, that's one of our, that's one of our recruiting things. It's like, you like kittens? You can have kittens forever. Your, forever. Cat, your cat will never grow up because we're right. just going to keep giving that's, you more kittens. Right. So I think that's, that's a big piece of it too. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's hmm. just a challenge to keep people on board because people's lives, you know, even if they have the best of intentions, their lives get busy or sometimes people might feel like they're not, um, 
especially in foster-based rescues, it's because we don't have a building where everybody comes every morning and we get to see the same people and we get to build human relationships that now that's another reason why I want to come to the facility and volunteer. When you're foster-based, it can be a little bit lonely. And so people can feel disconnected and, um, you know, it can be real easy once you move that last puppy or kitten out of your house to, you know, you go on vacation and now it's out of sight, out of mind and you don't get back to it. And, you know, we try to do what we can to encourage people to to yeah. keep doing it because otherwise you're starting all over again with a new person. And that's, right. you know, so I try, we try to, you know, create social events and we have meetings to try to encourage volunteers to have that connection with us, all of us, yeah. you know, we're a team as human beings. I would imagine a lot of the volunteers um, are self-motivated. They must come with a big heart to get involved in, in a rescue of any sort. Yeah. Um, you yeah. have to rely a lot of self-motivation. Yeah, they do. And, 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 but it also, you know, you talk about having a big heart. Some of it can be really heartbreaking as well, wow. you know, because not every kitten that I give you is going to, I mean, I, I try my best not to give anything that I think is questionable. I just, I I'll keep that heartbreak, but I can't, you know, who knows what's going to yeah, happen. And right. sometimes, especially with baby animals, things happen yeah. or you you're fostering a dog and that leg that we thought was broken turns out it's cancer right. and now it needs to be euthanized. And right. so there is heartbreak involved with yeah. that. And sometimes that's the, that's the thing that somebody says, I can't do that again. Right. And I, I completely I, I understand that. It. I yeah. respect it, Absolutely. but yeah. it is something to think about as to, you know, can I handle those right. types of things when you're volunteering? Right. And if it's no, then maybe don't foster, maybe help me with the fundraising. <laughs> right. Well, you know, or help true. with events, right. you know, or screening adopters or whatever right. it might be. I would imagine that some of the people that volunteer for you, fosters included, turn into adopters. They do. There are organizations, and I used to be like this. Well, I might still be. I have to be honest. I'm not sure when the last time I used the term, they refer to it as foster failing. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, she's totally a foster fail. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've been a foster fail. Absolutely. I was even an inadvertent uh, foster fail when I picked up a kitten thinking, surely I can just go run this over to this rescue and they're just going to take it. It doesn't work that way, people. Just for those of you yeah. who are listening that find animals. Um, and we'll talk about we'll talk about intake in just a minute. But yes, people do foster fail. Sometimes it's almost intentional. Like I'm not normally a foster, but I want to foster. Like we had a great Pyrenees. I think her name's Skye. And she had come in, somebody had shot her in the face and not nothing mortal. Thank God it missed her eyes. I mean, she had pellets all over. She even had a shell casing in her cheek and, but, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a life threatening injury, but we got her all cleaned up and somebody, a brand new volunteer said, Hey, you know, I want to volunteer to be a dog foster. Well, she did, but at the same time, what she really wanted was to test drive a dog. And it's like, <laughs> okay, that's great. Because if that's a way to get you in as an adopter, so she she fostered Sky and eventually and still has her adopted her. Oh, cool! But she's still on our books and she still comes and helps with events. She helped us with a Halloween haunted house thing last fall. Oh wow! So you know she's not necessarily a daily volunteer, but she's involved in you know she shares all social media stuff. She's still part of the team. She donates. She does does things, and I'll take you. I'll take you any way I can nice. get you. Nice, very nice um, along the way. Um, the, the challenge, just so that you know, is, is of foster failing is that if you foster fail too much, now mm. you're going to be, you're going to have your hands full and you're not going to want to, I've already got two puppies because I couldn't let go of those two puppies that I had. And now I've got now my you, hands full training yeah, these puppies. Yeah. And so now Amy needs you to take more puppies and you're like, I and can't, you can't, and you can't, and no judgment, but it's something to think about. And so what I try to encourage people, because volunteers will often say, 
or even strangers will often say, I don't know how you do it. How could you? Cause I've had easily, I think I stopped counting at 2,500 animals <laughs> that have come through my house. Um, and that was years ago that I stopped counting. So in the beginning, it's hard to let go of them. And as it, as time goes on, it's like, sometimes it's good riddance <laughs> from the standpoint of I've had 19 kittens and been yeah. bottle feeding them. Thank God they have right. their own home. Or it's, wow, I, you know, really didn't need a great Pyrenees in my, we just had another great Pyrenees in my yeah. dining room. And it's like, that was a lovely dog, but holy moly, I have no business having a dog that big that in my big. small house. Yeah. Thank goodness he's, you know, he's out in his own home. So what I try to tell fosters is don't think about that as I've got a puppy. It's my puppy. This is my baby for the next two weeks. If you you start having that dialogue in your head of my baby, my baby, it makes it a lot harder to let go. Sure. So what I tell people is don't think of it as your baby. You're not taking this puppy. Um, Amy has two kittens or puppies that she that she needs you to watch while she goes on vacation for the next three weeks. Perfect. So they're not yours. And they, and that, and I think that's important to tell your, to tell your children. Like I said, it's just that, that verbiage, yeah. it just takes the weight off your shoulders and yeah. it's like, I can do that. Yep. I can definitely do that. I can babysit somebody's yeah, pet. Instead of like, I, I want to care for it so desperately and I want to be involved so desperately. Nope. It, yeah. It's a window and it, there's a beginning and there's an end. And yeah. I think that's key. Yeah. Key to keep those fosters fresh. Yeah. And the, one last thing I want to say on that too, is that um, along that same line when people like, how do you let them go kind of thing is to realize, and I've said this so many times, is that you could, at least in the state of Texas, you could stack your house floor to ceiling with stray pets, you know, or foster pets, and there'd still be more knocking at your door needing help. That's true. So the best thing that you can do for them is to keep the pipeline flowing and not yeah. become the clog in the drain kind of thing. It jog, <laughs> you jogged my memory. When you first started doing this, and uh, we were talking about it on the phone, and I'm thinking to myself, how can you let a kitten go? They're so cute. How can you let that? And now, years later, um, I've gotten into the groove and the rhythm of the whole thing. And I'm thinking to myself, it's kind of like flipping a house. Yeah. You're taking these pets that may not be the healthiest, may not be the best socialized, yeah. um, whatever the case may be. And you're fixing it up to adopt it out. You're flipping animals is what you're doing. <laughs> Sounds terrible. Well, you know what but I mean? No, it is. But that, and it is. for me, that's what, that's what makes it palatable for me too. Because to me, it would be like ripping your heart out every day, but it's not. Yeah. You're really not. You're, you're just you're giving the, you're them. You're just the fixer up or interim You're the fixer stop. upper. Exactly. You're the interim stop right. for sure. So now the pet is fixed up, ready for adoption. What walk us through the, adoption process? Oh, yeah. Good question. So for us, we do things a little bit differently in that because we're foster based in, in, if you went to an animal shelter, you're going to walk in, you're going to look at all the animals. You're going to get the opportunity to take them out, play with them in most, most instances. And then if you like one, you do your application and you walk out the door and that's, that's how the process, that's how the process works. For us, we used to do that and we would set up what we refer to as meet and greets um, only to find out, just, here's just an example. You set up a meet and greet. So you ask a person to drive 40 minutes, because I live in the middle of nowhere, 40 minutes out to our rescue ranch. Yes, she does. Yeah, to meet a cat. And then during the course of the conversation, you right. hear something that you say, wow, this is not a good fit. Or you get a call from a person who wants to come out and meet a kitten. And then during the course of that conversation, they tell you they have triplets uh, under the age of three and they want the kitten to be for these triplets to play with. Yeah. Now, the logic in me says that a small kitten is not a good pet for very small children for a lot of reasons. You know, if you if you want to focus only on the child, that kitten's going to scratch 
the heck out of those little kids when they try to pick them up. They're grabby, they're scrambly, they're, you know, it's just not a good, not mm-hmm. a good fit from that perspective. Plus, kittens are much more likely to be hurt by a small child who's oh, grabbing no. it, squeezing it, holding <sighs> it too tight, whatever it might be. And if you really wanted a pet for a small child, you'd be better off getting an older kitten that has been super socialized, that is so relaxed, that hangs like a sack of potatoes when you pick it up. And, you know, we don't allow, or we, you know, certainly talk to people in great depth about not allowing their children to manhandle. I don't don't think animals should have to put up with anything, but there are some that are completely tolerant with riding in a, you know, a baby carriage or having a hat put on its head or whatever. And that's the cat that you need to make for a good experience for the cat and, and right. your child. Right. But I hate to tell you that now that you're standing in my, in my living room and now I've got to tell you, you can't have this kitten you drove all the way here for. So that's my long version of the story to basically say that our rescue, we ask you to do an adoption questionnaire. It's actually really your application. So you don't have to do a second application, but I want to know who you are. Um, a little bit about how you live, what you're looking for in a pet, who else lives in your home so that I can guide you to the pet that you're going to have the best experience with and that the pet's going to have the best experience with you. That's the way I look at it. Uh, Oftentimes people look at it as, you know, a screening tool. I'm trying to screen people in or screen people out. And if you want to look at it that way, that's great. But I'm only doing that for the best interest of everybody involved. Not certainly not in my best interest. I mean, I, my best interest would be to give away whatever to whomever and move them out as fast as possible. But that's not what it's about. Not for the pet. Yeah. And this is a more objective way. It's standardized. We'll put it that way. Everybody gets the same form. Everybody same gets form. The, yeah. Same questions, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Do you get people that sometimes are completely completely offended? by the questions that are there and, and actually walk away from the process. Has that ever happened? Um, there are people, yes, there are definitely people that have refused to give certain information. Like we used to ask for driver's license number because, you know, it's like, if you run off with our cat, we can at least report the theft of property because they're considered property in Texas. It's more a matter of, we do get people that are like, this is a really long, a lot of questions. Okay. Like it's just a cat. Why so many questions? And I think we've phrased our questions well enough so that they don't come across as offensive so that we don't get too many complaints of people saying to the questionnaire. Now you get into the rejections <laughs> when people are basically told, I'm sorry, we can't adopt to you. Then people get offended for what would, sure. What would be a, for instance, of why somebody wouldn't be able to adopt? Um Well, an easy one that makes it easy for us to back up is they already have in their home Mm. the number or exceeded the number of legal pets. So, for example, in a lot of communities in the Houston area, you're only allowed to have four pets. It doesn't matter. Dog, cat, dog, cat, you know, whatever. I don't know if they count. They probably don't count a goldfish or, a you know, hamster that's in a cage. But now, would anyone know you had four indoor cats in your house? No. But you know, that, that can be a reason for us to say, you know, sorry, we're not going to break the law by giving you that cat. And we're assuming people are telling the truth. That's true. They might have 20 cats and they only said four because they know the law says four, they'll say three because this will be number four, but I've got 55, you know, and I don't know that, you know, but it could certainly, it could certainly happen. Other instances that get a little bit dicey would be situations like the the parent with the, with the little children, right. You know, that they believe that their child is not going to manhandle a kitten or whatever it might be. And what it comes down to for us is that, and I had to tell somebody this the other day, not in as direct a way 
is that it's not, I, I am not in this business to make you happy. I am in this business to, to do the best by an animal that I've put blood, sweat, and tears sometimes into and find it the best possible home that it's going to stay in forever. And it has to be that way. Yeah. And I yeah. can't guarantee that anything could happen. You know, right. and I, I might know not know a lot about you because we don't go, go and inspect your house or do because some organizations will do home really? visits. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Lots. Are they, they're allowed to go into your home and... Well, you give permission by, by going through Because you really want that dog or cat. Yep. I didn't and know that. People will, oh, yeah. And it's a big bone of contention, you know, because it's like, I can see how people might perceive that as a. But if you really want your, that Great Pyrenees, you're going to jump through hoops. Yeah. So we want to see your fence in your yard and we want to see how you're going to contain, where's, you know, if, you, if you're not going to keep it indoors, where is it going to live? Is it going to have right. proper shelter, et cetera, and, et cetera. And, et cetera, and who control. wins? Yeah. The animal. Yeah. And that's, that's the... The, the hoops that you have to go through and, to make sure the animals and safe. that's what it's that's what it's about and you know some of the more challenging ones you know oh. are even age mm. age of people on on both ends of our life spectrum you know and as a person that has had cancer not a, not a horrible case yeah. but it's like i do think about my mortality and and you know but i as a 57 year old person i wouldn't probably if i didn't have an animal rescue yeah <laughs> and a and a daughter who i know for a fact, not an assumption, a conversation that would take my animals regardless. Um, I wouldn't adopt a kitten or something that I think could outlive me. I mean, it's probably, I'm a little borderline age wise, but when we get applications from people who are, a, you know, a 79 year old person living on their own, who shows up to meet an animal wearing a hospital brace, bracelet still. Oh I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It's a oh. true story. And God love you for wanting a companion. And I will find you a companion. I'll try my best to find right. a companion, but probably that kitten is not best for you when you're on blood thinners and when you're 97, because right. the odds are you're going to outlive that pet. And if you have a plan for what's going to happen to that animal afterwards, like we had an elderly lady one time that wanted to adopt a younger cat and she had an, uh, through some organization through, we'll have to clarify the organization, but it's, uh, it's a, an organization in Texas that you pay a fee, a pretty hefty fee or, uh, or whatever it is, to secure a spot for your pet. And when you pass away, oh, interesting. they will take your pet and they will either find it an appropriate home or it lives forever at this sanctuary. Oh my God. And it's a real thing. Really? So if, if I had an elderly person who was on their last legs, you know, I might say. <laughs> you know, really? Yeah. But Dude, I wonder if they adopt out from their place. I, you know, I don't know all the details. Oh, that's I, I probably so need interesting. To I never thought of something yeah. like that. But, you know, the, the problem is, is that people assume Oh. That when they pass, yeah. that their kids will take care of it and they will take it right to the shelter. Hmm. And, and I know that not, not, not all children, obviously there are a lot of people that take in their sure. parents' pets. You did it, yeah. you know, and even though it wasn't the optimal situation, you right. did it. Right. But I get calls, probably six or seven calls a week from people. My brother passed away. My uncle passed away. My grandparents passed away. My mom passed away. And we've got their three dogs, two cats, one parakeet, whatever it is. And nobody in the family wants it, can care for it, needs it, yep. likes it. Yep. When you first told me that uh, you get owner surrenders, I'm like, who would give up their pet? And I never even understood these scenarios. So yeah. it's another battle that you deal with on yeah. a daily basis. I mean, that's, it must be emotionally taxing. Yeah. Um, and I, well, I do want to mention the other end of the spectrum too. So, you don't, so you don't think I'm an ageist just against sorry. older people. <laughs> is um, younger people too. Mm. 
is that, you know, oh, when nice. we get somebody who, I'm, you know, I'm an 18, I'm a freshman in college, I live in the dorms, my dorms allows, pet, allows pets. We have to have pretty extensive conversations with somebody like that because, you know, you're 18 and you're in college, then yeah. you go home for the summer. Does your mom want that cat in the house all summer? Right. Uh, when you graduate and go back home permanently until you find a job, does your mom want that or your, whoever you live with? Or you get a boyfriend, girlfriend, some other significant other, and now they're allergic to pets. I'll give you an example. We had a young lady that adopted, she was a college student, a junior in college. She adopted a cat in February, returned it in May. Ugh. Because when she, no, she was a senior, sorry. When she graduated, she was going to be living at home with her parents for the next couple of years. And her parents were like, no, not bringing that cat home. And you have a policy that you will take them and back. And we do a lifetime return. So now we get the cat back. Is a, uh, do other rescues, do you think have lifetime returns? Like I'm that? sure some do. Yeah. I'm not sure everybody has the luxury. There's, you know, especially right. the ones that do, you know, we do 300 and something animals a year. The ones that do 300 and something a month. I don't think there's oh. any way they could yeah. do that. So, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. People are not always happy when you reject them. So you've gone through the adoption process. You brought somebody your, makes it through. <laughs> somebody makes it through. Yay. They get a, they get a, no. Okay. So they, someone has gone through the adoption process. They bring the kitten home. Everything is hunky dory. And then they discover that it, the kitten for whatever reason has a litter box issue mm -hmm. short of bringing that kitten back to you because they don't want pee on their carpet. What, what, what are their options? What do they do? Yeah. I mean, you know, the lifetime, our lifetime return is obviously a, a, a great safety net for that. But most people we find are pretty willing to, to work, um, to work on the problem. What I find, and this is a good note for you all as um, who, anyone who might be listening, that's a potential adopter is when you're being handed that animal and you're getting all this last paperwork, um, you're probably getting a lot of instructions about what to do when you get home with that animal, right. whether it's on paper, whether it's verbally or both, make sure when you get home, put, put the animal someplace safe, whether it's, you know, put the animal in the bathroom or sit there with the dog on the leash or whatever it might be. I don't want and, them in the bathroom. I want to be here in the living room watching well, TV minute, with me. You can do that in a minute, but, you know, really read through that paperwork and make sure you're understanding how to acclimate that animal to your home and follow, you know, trust the organization that they know what's the best way to make that transition. Because some of our litter box challenges, for example, with cats and kittens is despite the fact that we tell people to go home, find a spare bedroom, bathroom, whatever, set that up as the cat's headquarters for a few days. And then, you know, we give them a process to follow, to start acclimating and letting the cat out and about in the house. They will come home, they will open the cat carrier and boom, there goes the cat. <laughs> and now I'm over there searching under their beds for it because we have done that before. Or, you know, the, I don't understand why the kitten's not using the litter box, you know, it's but the kitten's litter box is down in the laundry room on the first floor and the kitten is living up with your daughter in her bedroom with the doors closed. Oh, my God. I never <laughs> but, even thought you know, of that, that kind of thing. Or even if the doors aren't closed, the kitten doesn't remember how to get back to the litter right. box or same but, thing with puppies, you know, letting them have free run of the house. You don't let a new dog have adult or puppy. You know, it might be house trained, but not to your house. Right. New smells, new so things. So you, you can encourage a new adopter to contact you? Yes. So, okay. yeah, the bottom line is, you know, follow whatever instructions. Do your homework beforehand. Um, and then, yeah, if you're having trouble, call the rescue and ask for help before you, you know, say, hey, hey I'd like to return this animal. But we try to, we provide a lot after. Shoot, I provide support to people who haven't even adopted from us that are that want to surrender something. And it's like, well, tell me why you want to surrender it. What's going on? With the and you can box? help them through the problem. Yep. I just did that the other day. I spent an hour and 45 That's minutes cool. on the phone with a guy answering 900 questions. Oh my God. But God love him. He cared that much to ask all the questions. 
and he'd done. he'd done a lot of things right but a couple of things wrong that just ruined the whole thing. Is that a common thing that uh, people can contact a rescue that they adopted from? I think most people will continue to give advice, uh, you know, where we run into the, okay, it's been a year is yeah. when they want medical support. It's like, if you call me a week after you adopted an animal and something's going on, like you're concerned about some behavior or it's throwing up, you know, but it wasn't doing that here. You know, I might pay for a vet visit for that because whatever's wrong with it is likely something that was wrong with it here that just hadn't ah, emerged. I see. But you call me a year down the road because the cat's thrown up. It's like, that is your pet. Okay. So that is your, but they that call, is your bill. They can call for advice. Absolutely. It, it's um, overwhelming. I guess it's like getting diagnosis from a doctor and you're getting all that information thrown yeah. at you. So it's nice to be able to refer back to you because once you start searching on Dr. Google, yes, you get, you can have <laughs> conflicting information. So it's good to go be able to go back to the source, whether it's a phone call or I assume email or yeah. whatever. Especially if you can talk to the person that actually fostered your pet. They might oh, the you know, foster. They would yeah, know best. They know best. They spent the time with it. They had all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, we do a lot, a lot of, you know, the, basic animal behavior. But if it's something like, she seems really shy about this, or I can't get her to do that, whether it's dog or cat, I'll put them in, if, as long as the foster's okay with it, we put them in touch with the foster because they've been working through that same thing. And I didn't, didn't even occur to me. And the foster's about. open to helping them out. Yeah. I mean, most of them Oh, that's are. so cool. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yep. So, you know, we try to do our, our best to find the right adopters and then support them once they've adopted from us. Huh. So. so you're supporting the fosters that are doing all their work. Now you're supporting, supporting the adopters, you know, who supports Amy? So there's a lot of phone calls. There's a, <laughs> a lot of phone calls. Of- there's been times when I visited her in Texas. You know, Grigio supports Amy. You, know, yeah. <laughs> the, it, the phone calls do come. and Lots of phone calls. And she answers the phone a lot. Yep. A lot. Yep. So all those phone calls and the tugging at the heartstrings, I'm sure is, is taxing, you know, the downside of all the good that you do. What are, what are some, emotionally taxing things that you find or, or is that a big, big issue for you in a, in a rescue? I mean, that definitely is a huge thing. I think, I think, you know, you talk about volunteers and adopters not knowing what they're getting into. I think rescuers, we under, we underestimate when we get started, the level of horrible decisions we have to make horrible people you might have to deal with horrible conditions of animals, things like that. So, I mean, it, it is, it's, there's daily challenges and this is a, uh, you know, we, we keep at least in our rescue, unless if you're a foster and you're directly dealing with, let's say an animal that's dying, then obviously there's no hiding that from you. But <laughs> um, we try to keep a lot of that away from our volunteers as much as possible. Like I had mentioned, we, you know, I'm not going to give something. If I get a two ounce bottle baby kitten, you know, oh. cause there's a, there's a weight limit where under, under three ounces, I think it is oh. somewhere in that zone. Let's say it's an ounce and a half. I'm not going to give that to a foster because the odds of that making it are slim. And I don't want you to have to go through that from the get go. No one it's going to do that. Um, or if you call me with certain symptoms that I realize that that kitten's fading, I will at least give you the opportunity to return it to me and I'll take the care from there. You do see, you see a lot of death, you see a lot of illness, you see a lot of suffering that you can't alleviate because there's just nothing to do for yeah. it. And then, you know, juggling the decisions of life, life and death decisions for, for animals with financial considerations, you know, which every, every pet owner has to make that, you know, yeah. has to do that same thing, but you're doing it on a mass scale in comparison right. to a pet owner. There is a little bit of and maybe it's just because I've been doing it so long. There's a little bit of 
decentralization. It's not my own pet. So it's sometimes it's a little easier to make that decision for some people. It's not, it's just like every one of them is their own pet and they feel that that's going to that be so draining. It would eat it. Yeah. It would eat. It would definitely eat my lunch if I, Ugh. if I, if I did that, but yeah, we struggle, you struggle with making those decisions because although fundraising has been good to us, it's still finite and you have to make decisions about is this life, worth spending the amount of money where I could save a hundred other lives and things like that. So that's, that's a challenge. It's also Mm. one of the things that I think in rescue, that's a big looking at other rescues and as well as our own is making the decisions about quality of life and how do you define that? So there are some people that feel like every animal should be saved. And so we're going to spend whatever amount of money to save that animal's life. Mm -hmm. But then where is that animal 10 years down the road? Let's say you get a, a dog that comes in that has fairly advanced cancer that's managed by chemotherapy. Are you going to spend thousands mm. and thousands of dollars on chemotherapy to right. put an animal in remission to adopt it out now mm. to make it that? Well, because again, there's a lot of factors that feed yeah. in. Yep. It's not just saving that animal. It's what are you doing to the person that you're putting that animal into their care, whether they feel like they can handle that or want to handle that or not. And then there, you know, there's the whole, and we had the, the episode on dog aggression, you know, there's safety issues that come up as to right. whether an animal's an appropriate animal to go out into the community or into a certain type of home or whatever it might be. So. That was a know. very powerful episode. And initially it was tough to hear, but in the end it made sense. It made a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Y'all need to be listening to the dog aggression episode. I think she even said in that podcast, if you don't listen to any others, you need to listen to that one. Yeah. That was pretty intense and chock full of information, nuts and bolts, uh, uh, good information. Yeah. You need to listen to that one. Yeah. The beauty of rescue is if you do it right and you have good relationships with a veterinarian, it's not like Amy Castro is making these decisions in a vacuum. Right. You know, it's, it's whether it's with the board of directors or whether it's just me and the vet having a conversation, we pretty much go with what the best veterinary advice is on top of, you know, what is the long-term outcome for this pet? But it's, yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And then dealing with the people that want to surrender pets too. That's another daily challenging situation. It's, it can be incredibly frustrating. The situations where animals are in trouble because you didn't make good choices along okay. the way. Right. There are situations where it's you didn't have the financial means to make good choices, like spay and neuter, let's okay. just say. So when I get a call from a person who says, I've got a dog in my house, it's not really my dog. My boyfriend's dog, it was my boyfriend's dog, but he moved out and left me with this dog. And now it just had 12 puppies. Ugh. Can you take them all? Because I can't afford to care for them. You know, somebody, some human along the, on the way could have prevented that yeah. and they didn't. And now it's going to be my, pro my problem. Right. And then I have to say no, because I don't have room for a mother and 12 pit bull puppies and not just pick on pit bulls specifically because I don't have a problem with them, but they are harder to adopt. If it had been a mother chihuahua with three chihuahua puppies, I can put those in a bathtub. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's a size issue. It's a quantity issue. It's an adoptability issue. And all of those things come into play when we're making decisions about intake. So that's before we even get into our system and having to tell people, no, I can't help you. Here's a list. Try these other groups, but they're going to tell them the same thing. And you hate to tell them that, but. And every rescue goes through that. Every rescue. And it's that, that is probably more daily than anything else, you know? And again, that's, we're a small rescue. 
And we probably, I personally probably take six phone calls and probably four or five emails a day. And that's just me. I'm not the only one taking those, taking that information in. For these tough decisions, do rescues in general have a standardized process of intaking? I'm sure every rescue operates differently. I mean, the, the ones that I know of, you know, there are certain ones that are only, that will only take in certain breeds. So there might be a, oh, gold, that makes sense. A like a golden, right. Rescue. That makes sense. But even those it's, <laughs> I love it. When you go to their websites, it's not like you're seeing things that look like golden retrievers. Like there are golden retrievers, but then there's like, that ain't no golden retriever because, you know, either because maybe they think, well, it's got a little of this. It looks like it could um, be, or it's highly adoptable. So you'll find that there are mixed things. There are certainly rescues that will only take in smaller dogs. Or uh, one of the interviews that I did recently with Sherry Franklin, who's the director of Muttville out in San Francisco, they only do senior dogs. Oh, but then I the, remember that one. But then the yes. question is, how do you define senior, you know? Because some some will say seven, and I wouldn't necessarily consider that senior. And I think right. their their numbers are kind of down there. So it gives you you, you want to have wiggle room because who wants to be hard and fast about saying I will or won't, and you know don't bother call me if if this is what you have. But it also directs the adopter. I don't want a Chihuahua. I want a Golden. So let me go in this direction. So if they're concentrated someplace, it's going to be easier to adopt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If they're looking for something, certainly if they're looking for something specific. I mean, for for us, we have kind of two different types of in intake, right? So there's the rescue intake where it's just an animal that's out there that needs to not be where it is, you know, stray or whatever. And then there's actually, it's probably three. Then there's the owner owned animal right. that is in a bad situation or the owner's in a really bad situation. And if you can help that person by taking the animal and we always try to offer other kinds of help so they can keep their animal. But if they're no, if there's no way they can keep the animal, then there's that. Um, and then there's the medical, whereas, you know, the animal might not fit any of your other criteria as far as what we, you know, what we normally take in, but it's an animal in need and you have the funds to provide medical care for that animal or God forbid, even euthanize the animal humanely because it's been run over by a car or something like right. that. Then, And that is, to me is part of the outreach in the title of your group. Right. Cause it's not just about fostering. It's not just about adopting out. It's somebody gets, you know, God forbid they get arrested or something and they, they need someone to help, help them out and care for them. Yeah. That's part of the outreach. It's not just about adoption. Right. Very yeah. Cool. So that's why we field all the calls. You know, we put our phone number out there so people can call us and, you know, people fill out a form on our website and mm -hmm. put in requests for things, but we don't have a specific, like we only take this, <clears throat> you know, we only do cats. We only do dogs. We only do things under 50 pounds. We only do something that doesn't look like a pit bull. I mean, we, we, it's a case by case. And a lot of it has to do with not just what we want to do, but what we have the space for. And that's why we've been so low in numbers as far as taking in dogs over the years because I have no dog fosters, zero Zippo. Well, actually, I have one oh. um, that can that can foster in the summer because she's a teacher and she's fantastic. She trains them and everything. Oh. But so all dogs end up at my house. So I can only have so many dogs in my house, eating my walls uh, and whatever else is happening. So yes, which is I, I why we're building our shelter facility. But even yeah. then, it's got six six dog runs. So yeah. now I can take six dogs at my house. But yeah, it's still a limit. And you can see so much is involved in these rescues, whether it's my best friend's rescue or any, wherever you're listening to this podcast, support your local rescue. Yeah. This is what they go through every day. Yes. It's, it's not just about adopting a kitten and bringing it home. She does this every day. And it blows my mind that she still moves forward in fifth gear, working on that building, getting things done, doing another fundraiser. I mean, 
it's just unbelievable. And this is one person doing one rescue. They're nationwide. Help them out. Support them. Yeah, it's definitely a passion project for sure. <laughs> you have to have a passion for it. Well, and you have to see that you're doing some good. And I think that's a, that's a, don't start. <laughs> you have to see that you're doing, doing some good in the world too, because otherwise the other aspect and the, you know, the other things can really, right. really tear you down. You, it's, it's kind of like spooning against the tide. No matter how many rescues, no matter how many animals are rescue takes and there's always more coming down the pipe. Oh, yeah. So this is where these heartbreaking decisions come in. Yeah. But the alternative is not having a rescue. Really? You're not going to help an animal? Yeah. Or the opposite extreme alternative is you overwhelm your rescue or yourself with floor to literally floor to ceiling animals. And now you're not doing anybody. And now it's imploding. And now, now the rescue's defunct. Yeah. 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 Well, I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast. I'm going to have Amy do the sign off because I'm going to mess it up, but (laughs) you can see how hard this stuff is on a daily basis. So support your local rescues. If you're allergic to cats, don't help with cats. If you don't are afraid of dogs, don't help with dogs. Go to Amazon and look at their wish list. Find another way to support. It doesn't matter where you are, thanks to the internet. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Also, thanks to the internet, you can do other things. Tell your friend about a rescue. Find a way to support them. Have a car wash. Support them that way. You don't even have to get involved with animals if you're afraid or allergic. It doesn't matter. It's hard work. We all know what hard work means. You got to reach out and support them. Well, but that's, and that's the beautiful thing is that there are so many ways sharing a Facebook post. I mean, that's huge for us because your hundred friends and then your friends, hundred friends. I mean, it just helps get the word out. So there's a lot of things that definitely can be done. If you care at all about animals, you know, find some way to get involved. That's at a comfortable level for you and, you know, and not, and not getting overwhelmed. So yeah, definitely. Thanks for the interview. That was, that was deeper than I thought it was going to be, but, it did, it's, right? but, it's, but it's good. I mean, it's, uh, it's actually somewhat cathartic to, to let people know. I don't even tell you half of it, but I you know, know. You know, let you at least get a glimpse into it. Cause it, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a and lot. it's not just her rescue. It's all the rescues. They're yep. all working their patooties off. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. So, so yeah, thank you so much for listening to another episode of starlight pet talk. Support your local rescues, and if you don't do anything else this week, make sure you give your pets a hug from us. You've been listening to the Starlight Pet Talk podcast. We're glad you joined us to gain new insight on the many loving ways to adopt and care for your pets. Be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you want more information, go to starlightpettalk.com because your pet can't talk. Be sure to join us next time for Starlight Pet Talk.